Travis is a little under the weather this morning. Uh, our loving little four-year-old was very nice to share his sickness with him this week. And so they are both uh, cuddled up at home together, uh, comforting each other. So our scripture this morning is not one that we hear often. It's one that we typically go through once a year. It is the baptism of Jesus, um, which typically in and of itself raises several questions to a lot of people. So we'll start from the top. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but I have never been comfortable as one that preaches on forgiveness of sins. It's not that I don't believe it. It's not that I don't think it's important. Um, It's just not something that makes me feel very comfortable. It's one of those things that people don't like to talk about. People don't like confessing things. People don't want people to know because people think others are going to judge them. And unfortunately, they've learned that because that's been their experience. Um, So for just simply the uncomfortable factor alone, I don't like talking about forgiveness of sins very much. Um, But we'll continue on because this is the baptism of Jesus. And even though Jesus doesn't need the forgiveness of sins through baptism, um, we're still on other people. We haven't gotten to Jesus' baptism yet. So the people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, John the Baptist, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I want you to picture here the whole Judean countryside. These are all the country folks in town because... Here, the Jordan River really does split two completely separate areas. On one side of the Jordan, you have desert land. And on the other side of the Jordan, you have the land flowing with milk and honey. So here, in the Jordan, between these two areas, you have these people that are of two completely separate walks of life. You have the city people, the people that are respected and well-known, you have the poor people, the country folk, so to speak. And they're all coming here to John. And what seems so crazy in my mind is there's this average person who's baptizing, proclaiming the forgiveness, the repentance of sins, and all of these people from different walks of life are coming to him. And it makes me seriously wonder what is going on in their lives, in their communities, that is drawing these people from different walks of life to need repentance and forgiveness. What is going on around them that this is what's drawing them together? I don't know. It doesn't tell us what is going on during this time. Just that these people from different walks of life are all coming for forgiveness. It just seems so odd to me. I don't, 
I'm not drawn to people for their forgiveness. It's foreign to me. So whatever's happening, this is apparently what people are needing. They are needing this reconciliation, this new life that is being offered by John. And it is drawing these people together and they are being baptized and they are confessing their sins to one another. And they are becoming community here in this text. They do say that confession is good for the soul. And maybe that's what their souls needed. I will say this. You will never hear from myself or from Travis any of the hellfire and brimstone sermons. If you've ever sat through one of those, that should be reason enough. (laughs) I am one of those that, from my personal experience, could never imagine the thing that draws people to Christ being fear. And so fear will never be the motivation behind anything that comes from this pulpit from us. Instead, it's what is Christ that hopefully you will hear from us. It is love. It's love that drew me in to wanting to be baptized. It is not out of fear. And I don't know what kind of fear or what kind of repentance is needed from these people that's drawing them to wanting to be baptized During first service, then I shared that yesterday I asked Travis if anything was special to him about his baptism. And he said no. He said I was 10, and it was the next thing. It was what was expected. For his church, he grew up in the church, and that was the next thing. When you're 10, then you went through, and that was the next thing for you. You got baptized, and so he was baptized. And it wasn't until years later that he realized the whole ramification of what that process is and what that meant. For me, I didn't grow up going to church. So when I was converted in high school, my experience with baptism was completely different. Nothing was expected of me, not even if I was to ever come back through those doors. But what I experienced in church is what got me to come back. And that experience wasn't somebody telling me that I was going somewhere bad or that something bad was going to happen to me. It wasn't motivation by fear or telling me that I wasn't good enough for something the way I was. It was exactly the opposite. I was shown love and grace, and people actually cared about me for me. I didn't have to prove myself in any way. And that's what got me coming back. That's what got me to ask to be baptized. That kind of motivation of wanting, desiring, longing to be a part of a community that is just like that a part of something that gave love, that gave life in that way, that is what I wanted. Even at a young age, without my family coming with me, that is what I wanted. And that's what should be, in my opinion, drawing people in. That is what draws us to Christ. That is us experiencing Christ 
is when you get to experience that kind of love and motivation to want to be a part of it. And not just the recipient of the love, but to give back and to be that kind of love to other people. That is the motivation that we need. That is the motivation that Christ gives us. Now, your eyes did not deceive you. This was Andy Pratt up here reading our scripture, talking about how John was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and that he had eaten locusts and wild honey for lunch. It was not Amy Poehler or Tina Fey, like you will hear tonight during the Golden Globes, announcing what everyone will be wearing and what they have eaten for dinner prior to the awards. It's very odd in this text to me that here we're sitting, we're talking about Jesus' baptism. And first off, it starts off, yes, with baptisms. Even though it's not about Jesus, it's about forgiveness of sin, which Jesus, that doesn't even apply. And then Mark goes on to tell us this one little sentence about what John was wearing and what he had eaten previously. I love telling stories, things that my kids have done, things that have happened to us recently. Rarely ever, if never, do I ever include what the person has eaten or what they're wearing unless it is applicable. So this sentence completely throws me off in here, um, other than the fact that it lets us know that John was a very down-to-earth, earthy kind of guy that's sitting here wearing normal clothes eating a modest lunch, nothing special, nothing out of the ordinary, everything that he could get from right there out in the wilderness. But it just seemed odd to throw in there. So take it for what you will, and let's see what other oddities Mark throws at us. He proclaims the one who is more powerful is coming after him. This is John. In which he is not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. While I don't think it's power that Jesus is after here at his baptism, I do think that it's very humble of John while all these people are flocking to him and he is baptizing them, releasing them of this bondage that is trapping them to the point that they're coming from all walks of life to get release, to get reconciliation, to get new life. I do find it interesting that he's so humble that he reminds them there's more to come. There's another one coming after me. There's even more. It gets better. And then sure enough, who came next but Jesus? And when Jesus came, the heavens were torn apart. And the spirit descending like a dove on him. It's their actual physical proof here. For while they get the tangible, the water, of feeling that cleansing 
throughout their body. And they're told that there is more to come. That while he has baptized them with water, one will come after him baptizing with the Holy Spirit. I'm sure they were just as confused by that as we are. The Holy Spirit is one of those things that works miracles through us, but we can never explain fully. We can share our stories, our experiences, but we never know the limitations. Here rises that big question of why Jesus is baptized in the first place. He has no sins. But it's here. When the heavens are torn apart, and I know that our sweet little Sunday school teachers and lesson plans always have that little picture of this cute little, little white dove slowly, gradually making its way. It's almost like the feather of Forrest Gump slowly making his way down to Jesus. But when it says, tore open, nothing is gentle about something that's torn. Things don't get torn by being gentle. And so I have to envision this dove nosediving straight down for Jesus in an instant to where there's no room for somebody to get distracted and looking at something else, it goes straight to him immediately. And it's during Jesus' baptism that he receives the Holy Spirit. It's not that he's there for the forgiveness of sin. It's there so that he can receive the Spirit. Because it is through the Spirit that he is able to get his job done. It's here at his baptism, after he receives the Spirit, that he begins his ministry. This is where it starts. And Jesus knows that that Holy Spirit is needed in order for him to be effective. It's here that he receives it. And those that are there bear witness to that, to the heavens tearing open. Now, I don't know if you have read the sermon title that Travis was going to do in your bulletin. You're probably very confused if you have because it says, like a pigeon. It was not misprinted. Um, Travis apparently has more time on his hands than I do right now because he's reading a book about birds. I know I married him. <laughs> And in there is a full chapter devoted to the fact that doves and pigeons are essentially the same bird. And in many languages, there are not two separate words for these birds. There is just one. Now, we here in America, we're a homogenous society. And so we have our German word for the word dove and we have our French word for the word pigeon, and so we in our society have two separate words for these birds that are basically the same bird, but different colors. Some will debate upon sizes, saying that a dove, regardless of its color, is smaller, and a pigeon, regardless of its color, is larger. 
I have no idea. I didn't get to read a book about it. So I'm just going to tell you that there are certain languages, Greek being one of them, in which there is only one word for both of these birds. And I can tell you that I do know enough to know that both pigeons and doves were there in Judea in this time. And so what question this raises is, is this bird what we've always envisioned coming down this Holy Spirit as, is this a white dove that we always think of as being clean and pure and something more elegant? Or is this your everyday pigeon that the poor people used to sacrifice when they couldn't afford anything more? Is this this animal that we look at and just kind of toss away in our mind and sometimes refer to as dirty? Is Jesus using this everyday bird or something more exquisite? Again, just something to ponder at lunch today. We don't know. And that's okay. After the Spirit descended upon him, a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. There's something special about that, not just that at this point in time, God is making himself known that this is his son. That God has come down to earth to tell us this, has made sure that the heavens are torn open and that we can hear this. But that word, beloved, this carries on and it means not only is Jesus God's beloved child, but we are God's beloved children. That word, being told that you are loved, is very strong. It's very powerful. I think love is the most powerful tool on this earth. There's a group called Write Love on Her Arms. It was started with a young woman who had been cutting and was going through a lot of depression and had decided that she could no longer go any farther and was going to take her own life. And when her friends realized this, they decided to get her help. But it was going to take some time before they could get her into the facility that she needed to be in. And so they decided to stay round the clock with her taking turns to make sure she was okay. But if you know about people that are suicidal, it just takes being away from them for a split second for that to not be in your hands anymore. And so what they did was they took Sharpie markers and all over her 
scarred arms where she had been cutting, they kept writing love, 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 all over her arms. So that if in a split moment she was away, she would look down and remember that she was loved, that she was someone's beloved. Being loved is a powerful thing. It is what motivates us to be our best. Church, you are beloved. You are God's beloved children. And in you, he is well pleased. We're going to have a change in our hymn of preparation this morning. We're going to sing All Who Hunger, number 419.